Good morning, Bridge. My name is Dominic Wong. I'm an associate pastor here at the Bridge Church. If you could please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 27. It's Matthew 27, verse 27. Now, I don't usually follow the lives of the royal family, but this year, 2022, Elizabeth II, the Queen of the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, is celebrating her Platinum Jubilee. That's the 70th anniversary of her ascension to the throne. Queen Elizabeth, if you are watching this live stream, congratulations. Long live the Queen. Elizabeth became Queen at the young age of 25, and she is now 95. And when it comes time for a new ruler to take her place, it's gonna be her eldest son, Prince Charles of Wales. When he becomes king, one of the first things that'll happen will be an official ceremony called a coronation, a crowning. Tori, if you could get that first picture up, please. This is a very significant event with lots of rituals and symbols that have for the most part remained unchanged for over a thousand years. On that day, cheering crowds are gonna gather to watch their new king proceeding through the streets with a royal escort of marching soldiers. He'll arrive at Westminster Abbey in that picture right over there, the great cathedral, the temple of the Church of London, uh, of England, sorry. And he'll be wearing an ornate scarlet robe, the first of many symbols of authority. He'll walk through the cathedral sit upon his throne, and to his left and his right, he'll see important nobles and, and powerful dignitaries. And then, can we go back to that first picture? Then, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the highest priest of the Church of England, is going to anoint his head with oil, and they're going to place in the hand of the king the sovereign scepter, and upon his head, a crown of pure gold encrusted with precious jewels. And when all that is done, then all together, the people will shout, God save the king. God save the king. Now, why is that important for us to know? As interesting as that all is, ceremonies like this have next to no impact on our daily lives. We're Americans. We said goodbye to the king of England over 200 years ago. But we, the church, have another king. And today's passage in Matthew 27 is about his coronation, his crowning. Today we're going to read about soldiers and priests and shouting crowds, scepters and crowns and scarlet robes. But folks, this is going to be a very different kind of coronation. Because at the end of our passage, instead of crowds cheering, God save the king, instead of that, the people are going to ask a question. Will God save this king? Will God save the king? And Matthew is going to ask us, Bridge, us, to reconsider. He'll prompt us to ask another question. What kind of king is Jesus? So with that bridge, would you please stand for the reading of God's word from Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. 
And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. For this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our story picks up right where we left off, in Jerusalem at the Passover, the busiest week of the year. Rumors were spreading like wildfire of this man, this Jesus, who the crowds were calling the Messiah, the king. And this made the Jewish leaders, the priests and the elders, and made them nervous and jealous and fearful. They were fearful of what the Romans would do if this Messiah stuff got out of control. And they were fearful of what the mob would do if they tried to arrest this king. And so they found themselves walking a tightrope between two very dangerous outcomes. But then an incredible opportunity presents itself. One of Jesus' own followers, Judas, he comes in secret. And with his help, they arrested Jesus privately at night. They called up witnesses looking for a charge that would stick. And finally, they not only found witnesses, but they managed to get a verbal confession from the man himself that Jesus did, in fact, claim to be the king of the Jews. The next morning, they rushed him to Pilate, the Roman who actually called the shots. And the Jewish leaders worked the crowds up into a frenzy, got a little protest going, until the court of public opinion was screaming for a death sentence. And so to avoid a riot, Pilate caved. 
And that brings us to verse 27. Soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor Pilate's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. That's one of their robes, one of the soldiers' robes. They took it off and just hung it around him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Here's our coronation. They're crowning the king, putting a scepter in his hands and a scarlet robe on his back. But even though they hail him and call him king, it's, it's all a joke. It's all for fun. They're, they're being ironic. The first of many ironies. Like if you, someone from Kansas, drove over to North Carolina and went up to a UNC basketball fan and you said, hey, congrats on that NCAA title. Really good job. You'd be making a joke because they lost. That's what they're doing here. They're rubbing it in. This man is no king. He's a criminal. He, he arrogantly thought there could be a king other than Caesar. But look at him now. We got him. He's done for. His time is up. And so after the soldiers make their joke, the irony peels away, and we see straight up how they really feel. Verse 30. And they spit on him and took the reed and, and, and struck him on the head. They take his scepter and they smack him with it. And when they'd mocked him, they, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is how they really see him. Not as a king, but as a man they could beat and abuse. So they spit on him, knock him on the head, mocked him and stripped him. And then forced him to drag his own cross to the place where they'd crucify him. But a bruised and battered man can't carry much for very long. And so in verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. Here's a second irony. This Simon of Cyrene is carrying Jesus' cross. And we haven't met him up until now. We don't know who he is. But think back. Who did Jesus command to carry his cross? Another Simon, Simon Peter. And yet here, Simon Peter is nowhere to be seen. It ought to be Peter carrying his master's cross, but instead the soldiers, they force a stranger to carry it all the way to Golgotha. Verse 33, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, that's, that's bile, that's stomach acid. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. That's gambling, they're, they're playing a, a poker game to figure out who gets his shirt. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. Let me ask you something. What does it mean to be crucified? What is the cross? 
Well, first of all, it's an excruciating way to die. There's obviously the pain of having nails driven through your wrists and and through your ankles and and then hanging from them. There's the loss of blood and, and the raw flesh of exposed wounds. But the main way the cross kills is actually through suffocation. Did you know that? As your muscles give out and you lose the strength to hold yourself up, you sink down until your lungs can't take in enough air. But then your body, your body, it fights back and, and instinctively it pushes up just for, for a quick breath. But this tears at the wounds and it takes all your strength to, to even just get a second of air. And then your muscles give out again and you sink down until you need another breath. And, and you basically just do that lifting up and sinking down, lifting up and sinking down, up and down until you can't anymore. It can take days. It's, it's unspeakable agony. But unlike a certain Mel Gibson movie, Matthew doesn't focus on all that. For Matthew, the cross is shame. It's shame. I mean, think about it. They, they could have just beheaded him or, or, or shot him or, or, or tortured him behind closed doors. But this is a public execution, done in full daylight by by the side of the road on a a hill called Golgotha, a a spectacle for for everyone to see and laugh at, Christ on a lynching tree, an example of what would happen to anyone who dared to challenge the might and power of Rome, which is why we read in verse 37, And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Again, irony. A self-proclaimed king dying right alongside criminals. The Romans were putting Jesus in his place. This was a very intentional shaming. And and the shame was not lost on the Jews either. Everyone present would have looked at Jesus and they'd have thought of a verse that they would have learned long ago in school in Deuteronomy 21, which says, anyone who's hanged on a tree is under God's curse. Anyone who's hanged on a tree is under God's curse. He was an object of shame. And so in verse 39, those who passed by derided him. They made fun of him. They insulted him. They wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the son of God, if you and God are really that close, then Jesus, come on down. Save yourself. Do it. If God's on your side, you can do it, right? Because God can do anything. But if not, I guess you're really not all that you think you are. You're not the son of God. You're under God's curse. You're hanging from a tree. 
Now, think back with me for a second. Where have we heard this before? If you are the son of God, come down. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Who said that? Who who, who do the people sound like here? They sound a lot like Satan in Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. What does that mean? What was the devil doing back there? He was tempting Jesus. He was saying, look, Jesus, if you're God's son, if God's got your back, then jump. God's got you. He'll, he'll send an angel. He'll send an army of them. God will never let you come to harm. And this is pretty much what they're saying now in today's passage. The people sound like Satan. They're they're thinking like the devil. They're saying, Jesus, if as you claim, you have the power to destroy and rebuild the whole temple in three days, then save yourself. If you're the son of God, get up off that cross. If this Jesus is the Messiah, the king, the son of God, then God save the king. God save the king. Save him. Send your angel armies. Wipe out all his enemies. Get him off that cross and put a real crown on his head. But that didn't happen. The angel armies don't show up and wipe out the Romans. And Jesus doesn't come down off that cross until it's over. And so the crowds are left with just one conclusion. It doesn't look like God loves this man. In fact, it looks like God's cursed him. And so they also cursed him. Everyone, from the priests and the elders down to the lowest criminals. Verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. This is the king of Israel, let him come down now from off the cross, and we won't believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Like the Roman soldiers, the Jews mocked Jesus. They taunt him. Gentile and Jews, everyone's doing it. They think to themselves, look, I'm pretty sure the Messiah, the king, doesn't look like this. And I don't think God's chosen, his anointed conqueror, dies like a criminal. That's not how the story ends. And what they're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, I hate to say this to you, buddy, but if God really loved you, if you really were like a son to God, then I got news for you, pal. You wouldn't be in this mess. God wouldn't have let this happen. God wouldn't do that, right? Because the underlying thought, the way that they think the world works is simply this. If God's with you, you win. And if you're losing, then God's left you. That's how the world thinks. They believe that success is God's favor and humiliation is God's absence. 
And doesn't this kind of thinking come to us very naturally? But when suffering comes and it's time to bear our own crosses, isn't it so easy to believe something a lot like this? To think to ourselves, where's God? If God were really here, and if he really loved me, then would this be happening? So either God doesn't love me, or maybe he's not here. Bridge, do you know someone who's wrestling with these kinds of questions? Do you have a friend who's searching for God in the midst of suffering and trial? Is there anyone in your life who has lost their faith or found only despair in the face of negative outcomes, bad diagnoses, tragic accidents, horrible trauma? Or is this you? Are you asking these questions today? Are you wondering, is God there? And if he's there, does he love me? I know how the soldiers and the priests and the crowds would have answered your question. And I don't think I like their answer. But if they were right, if, if suffering means God has abandoned us, if, if pain and sorrow are God's curse, if God didn't approve of the man who hung from the cross that dark day on Calvary, if he thought that was true, then it makes sense what the crowds did on that day. Of course, they cursed Jesus. Because after all, God cursed him first. And of course, they mocked him and laughed. He was a man who saved others, but who, ironically, couldn't save himself. He was a self-proclaimed king, again, ironically, wearing a crown of thorns. Here was the so-called son of God, dying, ironically, in shame, like a criminal. And so, of course, they laughed. They dressed him up like a king, gave him a title and a crown. How funny, how ironic. They thought the joke was on Jesus. But bridge, here's the twist. They didn't get the joke. They couldn't see the full picture. They didn't quite understand that just how ironic this whole situation was. I very briefly, for a year, taught social studies and language arts at the high school level. And one of the things they try to teach you in high school English is the different ways that something can be ironic. There's three main categories of irony, and if you'll indulge me, I'd like to do a little English lesson right now. The first kind of irony, verbal irony, is when someone says or does something but means the opposite, kind of like sarcasm. So when the Roman soldiers say, hail, king of the Jews, or when the priests say, come down from the cross, and then sure, we'll believe you, that's verbal irony. They're saying one thing, but they mean the opposite. Verbal irony. The crowds, the soldiers, the priests, everyone thinks this kind of irony is the main thing going on here, that they're the ones being ironic. They're the ones playing the joke. But there's a second kind of irony, and that's dramatic irony. And that's when we, the audience, know something that the characters in the story don't know. 
We got the inside scoop. Uh, Here's a poster for the movie Jaws. Lady in the water has no clue what's going on. She's just having a great day, swimming in the ocean. But we, the audience, can see the full picture. And we know she's about to have a really bad day. That's dramatic irony. And there's a ton of it in today's passage. When the soldiers take Jesus' clothes and gamble to see who gets them, they think they're the ones calling the shots. They think that they're getting a cut of the pie. But we, the audience, know something they don't. If we're reading the Bible closely, we know that this was going to happen. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. When they give Jesus wine mixed with stomach acid, they're playing a joke on Jesus. It's a game to them. But we, the audience, we understand that the scriptures foretold this. Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And when the crowds mock Jesus and they wag their heads saying, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. They don't understand what's going on, but we, the audience, if we remember back to our Psalms, we can see that they're fulfilling the words of Psalm 22, verse seven. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. They're almost repeating it word for word. It's important that we get this dramatic irony, that we catch what's going on here, because if all along these scriptures were talking about the Messiah and his suffering, if a thousand years earlier God said this was going to happen to his chosen one, then what's happening to Jesus on the cross is not evidence that the Father has rejected him. It actually confirms that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is not just a victim of the mobs. He's not just an unjustly condemned martyr. And his death isn't just an absurd injustice. Jesus was there on purpose. And so the cross was not a sign of the Father's displeasure but of Jesus' obedience to accomplish the Father's will. And brothers and sisters, this is good news for us. Because as the book of Romans tells us, it means that not tribulation or distress, nor persecution or famine, nor nakedness or danger or sword, none of that can separate us from the love of God. Not even a cross. Now this doesn't mean that all suffering is godly. Sometimes we suffer because we do dumb things. But what it does mean is that no suffering, even death on a cross, has the power to keep our God from being with us. Suffering is not a sign that God is against us, and pain does not mean that we have been abandoned. And that in itself is comforting. It's a comfort to know that God is with us in our sorrow. That he saw our sin and our pain, and he sent his son to die for us. That far from leaving us alone in that, he showed his love for us and himself dying on the cross. Jesus didn't just die so he could relate to us or give us a good example of how to suffer for God. No, he came to die for us. 
Let's look at our third and final kind of irony, situational irony, which will explain how what he did saved us. Situational irony is when something happens that you don't expect. When something crazy goes down that's the opposite of what everyone thought would happen. Like imagine if a football team is playing defense and, 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 and the game is going and someone hits the running back so hard that, that he stumbles into the end zone and scores a touchdown for the opposing team. That would be situational irony. Not what anyone was expecting. Totally the opposite of what the defensive line meant to do. The crowds and the priests and the soldiers, they don't see this third kind of irony, situational irony. They think they're being funny when when they call Jesus the son of God. But little do they know that they've just crucified the true son of God, the second person of the Trinity. They think they're making fun of Jesus when they crown him and lift him up and declare him king of the Jews. But little do they know that this is Jesus' true coronation. This is what the true king looks like. They think they're playing a game with Jesus when they tell him to save himself. But little do they know that Jesus is the one true savior, sent to save us not from the Romans or from suffering, but from the sting of death. And though he did nothing wrong, he willingly bore our curse. And in his death, He conquered death itself and took away death's sting. And Bridge, that's good news for us. In fact, it's the best news we could have possibly ever imagined. Because brothers and sisters, it means that even if we should one day find ourselves upon a cross, even if we should suffer suffer to the point of death, we can rest in the knowledge that the love of God is so powerful, so strong, that even death cannot keep us from our Jesus who died so that we might live eternally with him. On that day, the mocking crowd saw the cross as a symbol of shame, and they saw Jesus as nothing but a criminal and a fake king. But brothers and sisters, for us today, for all who call on Jesus' precious name, the cross is our hope. Our king was truly crowned that day, and in his death, we are saved. Do you have this hope? Does the cross mean hope for you? Have you called on Jesus' name? Do you trust that he died for you? If you have, then what belongs to you is an unshakable hope. Bridge, cling to this hope. Cling to our Savior. Cling to our King. Cling to the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today in humble awe and wonder at what happened there that day on Calvary, on Golgotha, on the hill. God, we confess that so often we don't recognize that you're with us. We don't see your presence. We think you're gone. We wonder where you are. Lord, we confess that often it is so easy to fall into the way this world thinks that when we bear our crosses, you're nowhere to be seen. But God, you've demonstrated for us once and for all 
in amazing fashion that you are with us on our cross. You were with us on the cross 2,000 years ago. You are God with us, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. So God, we thank you for him. We thank you for what he did for us on that cross 2,000 years ago. We thank you that in him we have hope eternal. That in him we have a true king, a true savior, a true, a true image of the divine God. So God, we ask that you would open our eyes this week to see him. This week in Passion Week, in Holy Week, as we approach Easter, as we approach Good Friday, God, that we would have this in our hearts, that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten son to die for us, to save us from our sins. God, would we call upon your name. God, if there's anyone here in this room who has not yet, I ask that you would stir in their hearts to move them, to find that hope, to find hope in the midst of suffering and darkness, hope in your son. God, would you be with us? We thank you that you're with us. In the name of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.